Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Paul's encouragement to the Romans here reads a lot like clubhouse rules. You know, the same kind that um, my mean friends growing up in the neighborhood would do to limit who could be a part of the club and also what would guide the identity of the club. I remember our next door neighbor at the time growing up um, created a platform. It was an elevated platform and I think the intention was for it to be even grander in time but I suspect that the mom and the dad that put it together just kind of petered out, which was fine. An elevated platform gave us elevation, enabled us to see. It allowed us to, to have a trap door to keep away anybody else that might want to come up and be a part of the clubhouse um, from the ladder that we had up there. So I chuckled when I came across some rules to a childhood clubhouse that grabbed my attention. Some of this may resonate with you. For all I know, this may be your house rules. Rule number one, you can pick your nose as much as you'd like. Number two, you can eat in the clubhouse and burp as loud as you want. Rule number three, a particular favorite of mine, if you have an itch, you can scratch it as much as you'd like. Never use the word please, thank you, or bless you. Rule number six, no girls or mamas can tell you what to do. Rule number seven, fighting is always allowed. And rule number eight seems to suggest that this circumstance had happened in one's home. You can eat chicken nuggets with sauce, and if it gets all over your mouth, you can wipe it off with your shirt sleeve. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. I didn't know that the Harvard Institute for Adult Development had done a study that has been going on for 85 years. Now, that's a, that's a long time of studying childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, trying to determine what it is that helps bring about quality of life. Over these eight plus decades, this department at Harvard University has tracked 2,000 men and women over the generations and trying to determine what it is that helped contribute to their happiness or lack thereof. They looked at the physical health, they looked at mental health, they looked at longevity of health. They, they considered career achievements, education, exercise, diet, many of the things that the royals will be sharing with others in terms of a life seminar. What is it that makes a difference in the quality of our lives? Surprising few, it's come down to this. The one thing that seems to make the difference 
among all the different indicators and contributing factors is good and healthy relationships. If you have good relationships, it will result in a good quality of life. Surpassing all other things that we would think would make a good life, it is the quality of the relationships that you have. And doesn't this ring true for us? Especially when we consider the seasons in our lives, the times where we were buoyed by support of, of friends, of friendships, of Sunday school classrooms, of the people seated in your pews right now, of the people that followed up with you, that empathized with you. That even though during those seasons in our lives that were difficult, these relationships, the quality of the relationships that you had at work, in your home, at the church, in your lives, it's the reason you were able to keep your head above water. And y'all, I believe that the church figured this out centuries ago. I believe intuitively this is why we continue to want to be church together. It's so that we can be in right relationship, not only to one another, but particularly to God. And that that works best when we do it together. That isolation, as we learn in the pandemic, is no way forward for any of us. This, this is why we choose to be church. The connections that we have. The ability to learn from one another, to share our lives together. We know, y'all, that being Christ-like to one another, particularly in our relationships, will improve our quality of life. Church is the place where we learn how to practice our faith. And Paul knows that that begins with love. So he encourages the followers of Christ in Rome. He says, let love be genuine. Love that is not sincere is not love. We know this. Be aware of what's evil. Hold fast to what is good, he says. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I love that last bit about our spirit and our sense of zeal. Paul knows how important it is for us to have a kind of fighting spirit deep within us. But being sure and clear, we know what's worth fighting for. And that is the sense of unity and love for God and for one another. Growing up, having a strong spirit, having a good attitude, having zeal covered all kinds of sins. You could have been a part of any kind of team or any kind of classroom experience and there could be any kind of deficiencies of skills or gifts. But if you had the right spirit, you could get things done. You could excel. Anybody that's been a coach of a little league team or a high school football team or, or worked on a musical that you're going to be doing at Christmas or at graduation, we all know that having people work 
together for something for good can cover up all kinds of things that that the world looks upon as not good enough. I like this idea of mutual affection, of, of loving one another with a sense of reciprocity. It reminds me, of course, of the experiment that we did several years ago as part of my doctoral project of soul friendship. No, the Irish Christians, the Celtic Christians, they did not invent soul friendship, but they did a really good job of allowing it to be a part of one's faithful expression of love of God, recognizing that God loved us so much that he sent Christ to demonstrate love and that it's best understood through friendship. Friendship as practiced in the church is the best expression of who we're called to be. And as many of us know painfully, I might acknowledge, a friendship is not one way. It is rooted in mutuality, of reciprocity. Don't get me wrong, a relationship where we practice and offer friendship one to another is certainly not wasted, but you and I know that that's not a soul friendship. And that our friendships can be deeper when we mutually practice Christ to one another, of listening to one another, of taking the time to, to share, to give, and to take, to listen, and to be present. We all know what it's like to be a part of a relationship that's one-sided. It leaves us feeling empty, hurt, where we can't feel or sense any sense of or kind of empathy. We know what that's like, which is why Paul is inviting us to allow our love for one another to be sincere, genuine, he calls it. And that the best expression of being church, of being brothers and sisters in Christ, of being friends, is that it is a mutual relationship dedicated to sharing the same amount of time the same amount of emotional and interpersonal relationship and attention to one another. Y'all, this is what we should be good at. This is one of the greatest offerings we can give to our world and community of what it looks like to be good friends. I like how the renowned pastor of the 20th century, Eugene Peterson, put it. He said, community means people who have to learn how to care for each other. I think I'd swap out church for community so that it would read, church means people who have to learn how to care for one another. Because we do have to learn how to be soul friends. We have to learn how to be Christ to one another. This is not something that comes naturally to us, which is why Paul reminds us to be aware of ourselves. To keep our egos in check. To recognize that we still need to be teachable. Which is why we want you to show up. To be present. To read and reflect in the scriptures. Because every opportunity that we have for engagement with one another, whether it's a midweek opportunity, a book study, a service opportunity, or a picnic, it gives us the chance and the crucible to practice listening to one another. Of asking questions of one another of finding ways to deepen our friendship to one another. Rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Paul puts a plug in for practical community living right here in the heart of this passage. It reminds me of my parents who would have enjoyed 58 years of marriage this past week. They had a a beautiful and rich marriage, a model for Rebecca and myself and for my brother and sister. But they were very real also. And there were moments, oftentimes set in the kitchen of our homes for whatever reason, where my mother, I could tell, was getting revved up, as my daddy would call it. What would start off as one statement would turn into seven, and then those seven statements would turn into a, a, a passionate address of, of some sort. And I remember my dad's frequent response. His shoulders would sag. He would look with wearied expression at his beloved wife and say, Angie, why do you want to fight? We are prone in community to be real. And my father's question was a good one at times. Why do we want to fight? Paul knows exactly what my dad and my mom, I might add, were talking about and experiencing. He says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. For some of us who've had any number of experiences with the church, we may think that the last place that we would look for harmony is church. Some of us know our deepest pain and suffering in church. And that is a deep sorrow I know that all of us as lovers of the church carry with us. We are certainly not perfect, and we certainly don't have it all figured out. And the temptation to run for the doors, to to head for the hills when we see pain and hurt where clearly some of us want to fight, when that that becomes our experience with church, of course we want to get out. And it takes such inner strength and resolve and resiliency to stay firm, acknowledging that we are no different than your families of origin or your neighborhood gangs from your childhood or the team that you were on in high school, in college, or your workplace. We are not immune from the humanity that we know exists in the world. But that should not be a reason why we give up this call. Because it's more than just an experiment. It is a call for us to practice intentional community together. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. I like how Paul takes Jesus seriously in this passage. We remember, of course, that at this time when Paul is writing these encouragements, Jesus is physically in this world out of the picture. He could not go online and download 
the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was not able to go to Amazon and have shipped to him scrolls or books or codexes as we would have called them. No, he was not. Even so, Paul's writings and encouragements here are clearly Christ-centered and Christ-informed. Listen for it. See if this sounds familiar. See if this rhymes with anything else you've heard. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them, do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If we were in Sunday school, I'd ask the question that's rhetorical here, unless any of y'all want to shout it out, where do we find this in the Gospels? And the wise ones in the room, which of course would be all of you, would say, that sounds a whole lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And you would be correct. Where Jesus, of course, says, I say to you, when you want to take an eye, if an eye was taken, or a tooth, if a tooth was taken, I tell you, don't do that. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is Christ's ethic. This is what should shape and change our hearts and should, brothers and sisters, change and shape your behavior. God bless us, everyone. As followers of Jesus Christ, we hear this, we proclaim it, and then we check it at the door when it comes to our politics or our conversations at work or what we really think about our neighbor or the jokes that we tell at the expense of people who are different from ourselves. Or allowing ourselves to do all kinds of evil because we ourselves were a victim ourselves. Paul knew Jesus. Paul knew Jesus because Jesus interrupted a path that he was on that was ruinous for his people, for the world, and for himself. Y'all know this story. Paul went by a different name, Saul. And Saul was a murderous faith terrorist, more akin to the Ku Klux Klan than fundamentalists. And yet Jesus saw love and worth in him and stopped him dead in his tracks on his way to do harm, to persecute his own people. Praise God that God saw in Saul someone who could convey God's good word as his ambassador and emissary to people in this region at this time so that centuries later we could learn about it and hear Christ's voice in the midst of it. Paul knew Jesus, and it's proven right here. Paul knew him not as one of his disciples, but certainly as one of his apostles, for apostles are sent out. And we are sent out, of course, to love as radically and as purely as Christ Jesus did himself. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. This is what the church can and should be like. And some of us are awakening to 
the truth that we need connection, that we need one another, that we've tried going it alone, whether it was in the pandemic or during your divorce, or during that time where you heard that terrible report from the doctors, or when your adult children found themselves in circumstances that you could never have imagined for them. You knew and you learned in these moments that you needed others. You needed the insight and the wisdom of elders. You needed the, the creativity and the ingenuity and the innovation of youth. You needed the body of Christ. It reminds me of an experiment that they did in the Northern Plains in the 1940s and 50s. Long before the Weather Channel and alerts on your device, blizzards would develop without warning in the winter or even the spring. These would come up during the day and children who would find themselves in schools would of course need to go home. It wasn't a problem for the school buses or the, the parents to come and get and accompany their children to the homes in town. But how about the homes out on the prairie, out on the farm? What were they going to do? Because they knew that these children needed shelter and that they didn't need to stay there at the school without resources, a mom, a dad, food, shelter, showers, baths, food, that what they did was they invited the families that lived in town to become storm homes. These were homes where when the weather got terrible, instead of going out on the prairie where you couldn't see how to get home, they would take up refuge with families and homes right there near the school. These children would end up there. They'd, they'd be welcomed in. They'd be cared for. The children, understandably, would be scared, but they'd be given soup to eat at the family table. They'd have a chance to do their homework, even if it was by lamplight. They would be able to get a good night's rest and feel the love, support, and encouragement of surrogate families That's what we're called to be. That's who we want to be in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Y'all, you and I both know that that sums up what it means to be in fellowship with one another, to be church to one another. That we rejoice in hope together. That we be patient in suffering together. That we persevere in prayer together. I am too weak myself to take the word together out of this verse. To just rejoice in hope on my own when I feel too weak. To just be patient in suffering when I don't have anything left to give. For me to persevere in prayer when I don't have a prayer at all. 
I need the word together to be a part of our understanding of what it means to be church. We rejoice in hope together. We suffer together, sharing one another's pain. We pray together, especially when we don't have the words to pray ourselves. The church at its best takes suffering seriously. We don't gloss over it. We don't say, oh, it'll get better. Or you think it's bad now, you just wait. We are not proponents of a prosperity gospel equating our love of God with our own personal fortune. No, the church takes suffering seriously. The church knows that we must in all things persevere in prayer. So proud of the way there is a deep awareness and hunger to be in prayer for one another and the circumstances that present themselves in this world because we believe that praying together changes reality. And we have hope as a church, as God's people, because our current reality will not be our forever reality because of the vision that Jesus gives us about what is to come. I like how Reuben Alves says it. Hope is hearing the melody of the future. Faith is to dance to it. I came across a story recently of, believe it or not, a new married couple, married on November 29th in 2016 in Ohio by the name of Jeff and Rebecca Payne, not Mathis. It was the day of their dreams. It was their wedding day. And the wedding, I don't mind telling you, was glorious. But then it was time, of course, for the reception. It was going to be at a reception hall, and everyone went their way to party afterwards. The problem was, however, that Jeff and Rebecca Payne got stuck in traffic on the interstate. 10 minutes turned into 20, 20 turned into 30, one hour into more hours than they could have ever imagined. They were in absolute gridlock on their wedding day not able to get to their own reception. I don't know how long it took for the other people in the cars to recognize that they looked out of place. Somebody got out of the car and knocked and said, shouldn't you be somewhere? And they said, we, we don't have a choice. We can't get to our destination. And the people around them were so moved by their circumstances that they invited them to come out on the highway, between the cars, in the midst of the traffic, and have their first dance. Somebody turned on Spotify. They cranked it up. It was Alison Krauss. It was the song that they were supposed to dance to at the reception hall. But the people there in their makeshift community, stuck in traffic, played them music so that they could dance there on the highway in the middle of standstill traffic. That's what the church is supposed to look like, y'all. 
The world that we live in is a train wreck. But we've been called to be salt and light and to find opportunities where the traffic is at a standstill, where people are being treated poorly, where there are injustices and darkness and any number of shadows. We are called to stand in the midst of that and create space for joy, where we can rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, and to persevere in prayer. They absolutely had it right. Hope is hearing the melody of the future. And the faith is to dance to it, even if your dance floor is a traffic jam. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Amen.